Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is a special Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, a podcast original. Nothing says holiday season like the Boston tradition of the Nutcracker Ballet. Tchaikovsky's tale of a wooden nutcracker come to life, featuring a beautiful sugar plum fairy, has been a staple in the repertoire of the Boston Ballet pretty much since its inception 50 years ago. And for 25 years of that time, ballerina Laura Young was a part of the dance company's seasonal performances and a principal dancer for the company's other ballet productions. Young chronicles the story of her career and the evolution of Boston Ballet in her new book, written with Janine Parker, Boston Ballerina, A Dancer, A Company, An Era. And Laura Young is joining us in our studio. Laura, welcome to Under the Radar. Thank you. It's delightful to be here. I'm excited to have you. It's not often you meet somebody whose whole life and career is also mirroring both a town, a city and its growth, and then an institution, and in our case, a really strong cultural institution, the Boston Ballet. Yes, we are now. Uh, it was a long road, but the ballet has really come into international recognition at this point and is recognized across the globe. Well, I want to go way back to the beginning of your career when you were deciding that uh, ballet was interesting to you as a very young child, starting at six. Tell us a little bit about your interest in ballet and um, as a six-year-old, how you were practicing and, and learning your craft. Well, uh, at six, my mother attempted to give me a ballet lesson. It was raining, and I was really being a basket case in the house. So she uh, she said, I'll, would you like me to give you a ballet lesson? And I said, oh, yeah, that'd be great. Well, along with uh, the ballet lesson came corrections. And as sassy as I was at six, I turned to her and I said, what do you know about ballet? Not realizing that she had danced with Mr. Balanchine wow. at 18. Very briefly, he said, come to study with me for a year, and I will put you in the company that I am just forming. That's pretty amazing. My grandmother wouldn't let her stay. Oh. At 18, it was not a good profession for ladies to be a dancer, and especially at 18, alone in New York. And that's the famous George Balanchine, if people are thinking they know that name. Mm -hmm. But there you were after that first initial lesson and then later on learning your mother's background. But you were just struck. You were captured by this craft. It was the old 78 RPM records that my grandparents had in the attic. And I found my mother's point shoes. They didn't fit, but I got up on them anyway. I was able to stuff socks in the toes and get up. And gradually, as the year progressed, I wore those out, and I stuffed more socks in her last pair of point shoes. And she found them when they were both worn out and brought them down in her hands and put them under my nose and said, what's this? I said, well, I found them, and I really love dancing. So she said, okay. And she took them to my ballet teacher, and she said, I think we'd better monitor this because she's been doing this for a year. And I was seven. 
Isn't that something? So tell us those early days of learning ballet. And by the way, our understanding, those of us who are not in ballet, is that that's about the age which you really do get started if you're going to have a long career nowadays, I would guess. Yeah, most young ladies start six, seven, eight, some even earlier. But that's a rhythm and movement, which is very productive in getting the musicality together for a dancer. Um, my first teacher, Miss Baker, who was the co-founder's cousin, Sidney Leonard's cousin, who also became one of my teachers, absolutely sang the, the steps to the music, which gave me a very early insight into how the steps correlated to the music and really helped me to become a musical dancer. Now, as we learn in the book, as I go along reading your story, there were a few times where your confidence about being a ballerina was shaken, to say the least, and you thought about leaving the profession. But in those early days... Was there something that just told you, this is what I'm going to do, and I feel very confident that it's going to work for me? Nope. Nope? You just were just I enjoying the dance? I was just enjoying it, and as the class regimen progressed so that there were more classes per week, more classes per week, and then, oh my gosh, at 13 years old, I was doing rehearsals as well as all these classes, and it was challenging to make my body do what was required. And interestingly, you know, if I were to, in my 18-year-old body at the time that I became a professional dancer, if I were in that body today looking for a job, I probably wouldn't get it. Now, why is that? A little pudgy, a little short. How tall are you? Well, I was almost 5'3". <laughs> that, that <laughs> now is I'm 5'1". That but is short for a bell. It is. Yes, right. But it was very interesting. People would come backstage after performances, and they'd be looking up, where's Laura Young? Where's Laura Young? And I'd say, hi, I'm down here. <laughs> but that's part and parcel to it. When I'm teaching today, I tell my students who are vertically challenged, as I am, that they can't afford to shrink. Everything has to be bigger than life. So then you made the transition to a woman who was who became well-known in the field of dance and certainly ballet, and that was E. Virginia Williams. Tell us who she was and how you connected with her. Well, my first teacher was cousin to the co-founder with Virginia Williams, Sidney Leonard. And Miss Leonard would come and perform with us in Miss Baker's recitals. And when I was 12, she said, you know, she's at the top of her class. She really should go into Boston if she wants to progress. And that sounded very exciting. Yes, I want to do that. And at 13, I was demoralized. I because was, it was hard. Well, no, I didn't mind the hard work. I didn't see that I was progressing. Mm. And some of my classmates were, and I felt like, oh, this is a lot of work, and I miss my friends. And mm. I did quit at 13. And uh, after about six months, I was like, well, this isn't any more interesting than what I was doing before. I think I want to go back. So what was the transition that, you know, you were on the path, at least for a while, you were on the path and felt, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. I'm in the hands of the person that can make it happen for me. Mm -hmm. When I returned, Virginia wrote me a letter in longhand that said, you know, you're far beyond what some of the other students that have gone on to professional careers at that age. And I think that you should really tried to do it. So she really pushed me when I returned without ever knowing why I'd quit, but I think she knew. Hmm. If you're just tuning in, I'm Callie Crossley, and this is a special Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, a podcast original. I'm here with Laura Young. She's the author, along with Janine Parker, of a memoir about her life and career as a ballerina, 
and the evolution of the Boston Ballet into one of the premier ballet companies in the world. Now, at this time, where was the Boston Ballet? There was no such animal when you were 13, really? Where uh, it was just coming to be? No, it was just coming to be. Uh-huh. She had Virginia had started the company in, I think it was 1958, and I moved into Boston in 1959. Was that when it was called New, the New England New Civic, England Civic, Civic Ballet, Ballet. Okay. which meant we were pre-professional. No one got paid. We paid money for costumes. And we rehearsed until 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning sometimes. And God bless my parents because they tag-teamed to get me in and out of there from Cohasset. And as time went on, how did you, you were pre-professional, what was happening in town and with her work in general beyond you to begin to lay the foundation for what would be the Boston Ballet? There was a movement, the regional ballet movement across the country. There's the Southeast Regional Festival, Northeast Regional. And Virginia and Sydney brought the company to these festivals where we could see other fledgling companies perform, take classes together, network, get all the information that the dancers and the company directors could glean from each other to create ballet in America. And I think we should say that at that time, some people may think even today, New York was the place. I mean, you know, New York was it in terms of professional ballet dancers, right? True. There were a couple of other companies with the Christensen brothers in San Francisco and Salt Lake City. Dayton Ballet had a company. There was a company in Washington. But we were all just starting out. Yeah. So you kind of pipsqueaks in the shadow of New York, if you think exactly. about it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And that is sort of what I want people to think about, because you look at institutions now, we can look around town and say, and feel as though they've always been there, even if they've changed somewhat on the outside, the edifices may have changed. But the fact that they're there, it's not a given. And I was taken with this part of the book when you wrote about there was a moment where there was just no money and no venue for the Boston Ballet. This is years after E. Virginia Williams has been working and you've gotten the support and there's interest and and lots of students and things are going well or seemingly. And then no money for it. And it, for a while, looked as though it might go away. And I thought you might read that part in your book because I thought it was so interesting. Okay. Just a year earlier, members of the company had been invited to perform for the president at the White House. It may have been naive, but it seemed incredible to me that we could have made such huge progress but possibly be metaphorically driven out of our own town. It was heartening, however, that we received the attention that we did from the press. We garnered even more attention from the public when we picketed outside the theater. This was the old Back Bay Theater Hmm. on Mass Avenue. Holding signs that asked whether Boston's cultural institutions could disappear, many of the dancers wore costumes, even point shoes, and normally ballet dancers would never risk abusing their joints and muscles on concrete, perhaps the worst surface in the world to dance on, but you can bet we pirouetted, carried our signs, and posed for reporters and passers-by. Because there was some amount of public discussion about whether the company would have to leave Boston, naturally, privately, we wondered what would happen to us as individuals. Although for many dancers, New York City is like the holy grail, the ultimate goal. If I can make it there, I'll make it anywhere. Dancing there wasn't my dream. I was and I guess I still am, to put it simply, a Beantown gal, a true blue Boston ballerina. 
That's my guest, Laura Young, and she's reading from her memoir called Boston Ballerina, A Dancer, A Company, An Era. She's wrote that book with uh, Janine Parker. So what made you so rooted in Boston? I guess the early years of, of struggling to make the company survive, it was the holy grail for me to see that it would actually get there. Virginia always said, I don't want to keep training dancers and lose them to New York. We should have a company in Boston. And we all took up that, and we had our banners and and our posters and picketed and turned back our first paychecks to the company because we had to prove that we were paid, so we cashed them and gave the money back Mm -hmm. because it was so important to us that this company should survive for the dancers in this area. So part of the book is also really about ballet itself, the art of doing it, the athleticism that it takes, and also much about the music and the pieces that you dance to. I noted that you uh, made at one point that George Balanchine was almost like the choreographer for the Boston Ballet because you danced so many of his pieces. And uh, one in particular was known as the Scotch Symphony. Let's listen to a clip. This is Felix Mendelssohn's Symphony Number no. 3, also known as the Scotch Symphony. Yes, I. Um, you were so excited when you got the role uh, to dance in this piece. Tell us about it. Well, this was the first piece that actually caused me to quit. <laughs> <laughs> I was 13, and Sarah Leland, who was our executive director's daughter, who went on to become a principal with New York City Ballet, staged the work for us. And uh, I was not in the first cast, and I was not in the second cast, but I was put in the third cast. And while there are eight ladies in each cast, there were only two in the third cast. And that, to me, was a marker. So I quit. A marker that you felt you weren't good enough. Oh, that I'm not good enough. Mm -hmm. So when I returned, Scotch Symphony just kept coming back again and again and again. And I was finally put into the core. And I was elated beyond belief. And... A few years later, I was asked to dance the solo girl, and that was a, the kilt girl, which was fast and furious. And up until that time, I only did slow, lyrical stuff, and I was itching for this. So that was, that was a thrill. But when I finally got to dance the sylph, and that music that you played prior was part of the finale solo for the principal girl. I danced it so many times. <laughs> in Summer Thing, on you know these platform tables in the parks, It's just a remarkable piece of music and a remarkable piece of choreography. At this point, at the point that you are dancing the Scotch Symphony, the company is really a company now. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's being looked at around, uh, it's getting criticism locally and nationally. It's growing into a force in itself at that point. Yeah. We started touring uh, 1979 uh, when we opened the Nervi Festival in, in Italy, and that was with Scotch Symphony. It was a remarkable performance. We had the ocean crashing behind us and the full moon going over the stage and Scotch Symphony being performed with all these beautiful pine trees around that were dropping their long needles on the stage. By the end of the ballet, it was a little like dancing on a log roll. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now, the way you talk about it, it just sounds fabulous. Uh, But 
we look on the outside, and even you talked about in your book, the pressure. I mean, this is what gave you pause a couple of times Mm -hmm. earlier in the career to leave. And I've been fascinated by some of the pop culture representations of ballet. So I'm going to play one for you. I know you know you feel strongly that this is the wrong impression of, of what ballet really is about. But this is from the 2010 movie Black Swan, starring Natalie Portman and Mila Kunis. And it centers around the lead dancer of a production of Tchaikovsky's uh, Swan Lake and the mounting pressure of the lead role in internal competition. We should note that Natalie Portman also won an Academy Award for her role in Black Swan. Here's a piece from it. Not so controlled, seduces, not just the prince, but the court, the audience, the entire world. Come on, the fuente are like a spider spinning web. Attack it, attack it, come on. Now, I should note that you were dancing to the music (laughs) as listening to it. Um, But the clip is really about the pressure that Natalie Portman's character feels. Was it that bad? And is that over the top, really? Or is that pretty close to what reality is? Because it's a hard job. Over the top. Okay. I think it said more about the character's personality and how she interpreted it. I mean, there are times when it seems really harsh, but... We're used to taking criticism. Criticism is part and parcel to it. We are criticizing ourselves in the mirror every single second. When you're doing that for eight hours a day, you're expecting someone else to come up with something because you want the help. That wasn't all that bad to me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, you're a tough cookie. (laughs) Well, let's go on and uh, talk about some of the other work. I was fascinated about your talking about what it meant to be on point the work, the effort, the practice, the pain, frankly, mm-hmm. of what it takes to, to, to be on point. So I'm going to ask you to talk about it a little bit, and then I'm going to play a couple of, of ballets in which that is required. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Most of them. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it takes an enormous amount of strength in the ankles, the muscles around the ankle, to keep them steady. Uh, you never want a wobble because that throws your balance off, obviously. It takes years to gain the strength and stability to do that. And just to be clear, your entire body weight is on your toe, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> okay, just, just, oh, yeah. yeah, all right. <laughs> That's... Yes, but you know, there's, you know how when you play a game when you're a kid and you, and you make yourself really heavy and you say, mm, try and pick me up, nobody can pick you up. So you're doing the reverse of that when you go on point. You're lifting everything as much as possible off that poor little toe. So that you can manage to do it, okay, Mm -hmm. because otherwise it's quite a bit. You never want your full weight going down into the shoe because it does undue pressure in the arch. You're actually using the muscles of the foot to pull up out of the shoe. So in a piece like Swan Lake, you're on point and you have to do all those pirouettes if you're playing... 32 fuertes. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which you said gave you a little bit of a challenge. Anyway, let's play a little piece of uh, Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake so people get the music and then I want to talk to you about playing that Odile where you have to do those pirouettes. So in this 
Foyette, as you said, um, it, the extended leg whips around, and the and the, as the dancer is whipped around, I, I tell you, I get dizzy watching ballet performers do that. You said it was tough for you. Well, <laughs> I was never a natural turner. It was uh, it was not something that came naturally to me. And uh, everybody has something that they have to really work at, um, and that was my thing. Virginia used to make us do sixty-four of them. Oh my God! In one sitting. Oh yeah, it makes thirty-two. <laughs> or standing. It yeah. makes thirty-two nothing. That's true. And it equates with what kind of energy you have in a performance because the adrenaline saps some of that strength. So when you can rely and know you can do sixty-four in the studio, you know you can do thirty-two on the stage. Wow. Well, I'm very impressed. Another piece, uh, Giselle. It's a story between Giselle and her love, Duke Albrecht. But at one point, you were actually dancing with your first husband. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that had to be very interesting. But you said there was a kind of chemistry between the two of you that propelled it, made it, maybe elevated it. Well, <laughs> I think the melodrama could have been done without. But <laughs> it, yeah, we had a split season, very strange organization, and I'm not sure why. But we did a run of Giselle for a week, and then we had a mixed repertory program where I was doing my first rodeo, which is a part I always felt I was destined to dance, being a tomboy. And then a a second week of Giselle following that. And during the uh, midweek, my first husband and I went to Brigham's and signed the power of attorney papers so I could get a divorce. (laughs) Well, putting that aside, let's listen to a clip from Giselle. It's really pretty when it's, you know, watching those two dance together on the stage during this ballet. It's a beautiful ballet. It is. You know, it's one of my favorites. Um, Now, aside from the personal goings-on in your life, um, which uh, took you to New York at one point, before Mm -hmm. you uh, divorced your first husband, you were living in New York and away from Boston. And it also was a time when the company was touring and becoming even more well-known. Now it's actually being thought of in a competitive way with New York companies. Mm -hmm. Just wondering how exciting it was to be in the moment where you are actually seeing something come to fruition. Some people see it afterwards, but you're actually in the moment as Boston Ballet is becoming bigger. I think it's hard to see when you're in it, you know, and we were excited because we had the backing of George Balanchine from New York City Ballet. We had Many guest artists coming in. Virginia and Sydney brought in incredible teachers and choreographers. So we were exposed to all of this, and every day brought a new excitement. Now, one of the things that I was very happy to see you talk about as in the growing pains of the company and ballet itself, not just Boston Ballet has had to deal with this, or really the the diversity issues. Mm -hmm. There was big controversy because at one point, the company did hire two black male dancers from South Africa, mm-hmm. and they were there for a while, and then one of them quit in a, quite a big controversy about he felt not being cast properly and lack of opportunities is really what it came down to. Mm-hmm. And you note in your book that this was through the years as you were working with the ballet, Boston was going through its own changes. 
changes. Mm -hmm. So you have the backdrop of Boston struggling with the Boston busing crisis and this happening inside the company and in general, ballet trying to figure out, well, who do we say we are and, and who can be a part of it? I'd like for you to talk yeah. about that a bit. Yeah. The diversity issue, mm. and actually we had many more black dancers and Asian dancers. More than, than I just thought. those two. I, yes. More than I thought, actually. I thought I didn't realize that yeah. until I read your book. Yeah. Augustus Van Heerden and mm. Sheridan Haynes came from South Africa via Minnesota <laughs> somewhere. Mm. At any rate, they came into the company and it was they were immediately accepted. They're dancers. I don't say that color was not an issue, but for us as dancers, it was not. We were always in there. Daryl Robinson was another black dancer in the company. Exceptional presence on the stage. Jeffrey Rue came in with Bruce Marks, another black dancer. Stephanie Moy was with us. She was the only Asian American. Now there are many Asians in the company, and I can't name them because I'm no longer in the theater every single right. night. <laughs> of course. I wouldn't expect you to. Uh, but when Gus quit, his issue was that he felt that he wasn't getting a shot at being cast in some of the larger roles that he that his talent would otherwise suggest that he was. Good and that for. was and that was an issue with a choreographer that mm -hmm. came in. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, many times when a choreographer comes in to stage a work, they have total say, and the company director does not. Interesting. The other part of this diversity piece that I was unaware of, I knew and know who Tally Beatty was, mm. but had no idea. He's a pretty much choreographer, well-known choreographer with Alvin Ailey and others, but he does modern. And yeah. you don't think of ballet, of a ballet company doing modern pieces. Yet, one of his pieces, The Road uh, of, the Phoebe, Phoebe, of Phoebe, Phoebe Snow. Snow, you did a lot of. Mm -hmm. uh, first, I'm going to let people listen to a clip of that, and then I'll come back to you about... It's a wonderful score. It, Duke Ellington. It's great, <laughs> but it's very different, but let's take a listen. So the ballet is the story of a train, uh, the Lackawanna Railroad line, which passed through the Midwestern section of the United States. And as we said, it was uh, uh, choreograph choreographed by Tally Beatty, who's referred to as one of the greatest African-American choreographers. What we were listening to is a clip from the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater's production of, but this was something that Boston Ballet did. It seems so very different. Tell me about how that came to be, and it was almost a staple of your repertoire for a while. For a long time. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how it actually came to be, but right from the get-go, Virginia's programming included modern works. We did works by Norman Walker, Pearl Lang, Merce Cunningham. I mean, all of these people were like infusing us with techniques, different techniques. We had jazz classes as a matter of course. It was a stretch for us the first time we did it. And each subsequent time we grew into it more and more. And it was highly charged work. The music that you just heard was what was called the dirty duet okay. because it was the sensual pas de deux. Mm -hmm. And uh, the lead couple did the love duet, which was much more demure. Mm -hmm. Well, as I've learned in your book, there was a great range in both what was happening in the growth of the company and in your own career. And I wonder how, as one who 
really have had more than a 50-some-year career in dance overall and 25 years with this company. How you look at ballet now and how you see audiences responding to it? I have to make sure I don't point my feet through the whole performance. <laughs> it's it's amazing. I sit there and I'm watching and I'm loving it. But I, every once in a while I find my whole foot is curled into a point. And I say, okay, you don't have to do this. <laughs> it's incredible to see the technical proficiency that has come into the company. I love seeing the performance as a general audience member now, hmm. even though I point my feet. Well, Laura Young, great job on telling us the story of both your life and the Boston Ballet and, by extension, Boston itself in terms of its growth. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much, Kelly. <laughs> Laura Young retired from dancing in the Boston Ballet after more than 25 years on the stage. She continues to work with the organization as a faculty member in its school. She is the author, along with Janine Parker, of the new book, Boston Ballerina, A Dancer, A Company, An Era. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us on Sunday nights at 6 p.m. on 89.7 WGBH for our regular airings of our show. In the meantime, you can find our show at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugars. Andrea Swahi is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.